Thanks for taking time to listen to this episode of The Real Rescue Podcast. Take a minute to go to therealrescue.com to check out these and other great deals from our sponsors here at The Real Rescue. This episode of The Real Rescue Podcast is brought to you by Breeze Eastern, the world's only dedicated helicopter hoist and winch provider, Axness. Because when lives are at stake and conditions are challenging, clear communication is of the utmost importance. Life Saving Systems Corporation. We do our work so you can do yours. Tough gear for tough jobs. And SR3 Rescue Concepts, because you don't know what you don't know. Breeze Eastern. They dedicate themselves to our helicopter rescue world. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November of 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and the unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to the rescuers, the operators, and those being rescued has not. Contact them today by visiting them at breeze-eastern.com. The Axness PNG Wireless ICS System can bring cutting-edge wireless intercommunication system technology to any aircraft. The PNG system can be fully integrated into an existing ICS system or can be carried on and off as a mobile base station. They can go anywhere, at any time, on any aircraft. Plus, with the strongest and most robust waterproofed handheld on the market, this system can take a hit and keep working. Their wireless intercom systems are designed to enhance situational awareness through improved communication capability. This system brings superior noise canceling technology to eliminate rotor wash and engine noise from your ICS. The Axness PNG wireless system is currently deployed in more than 1,800 public safety, air ambulance, and search and rescue aircrafts worldwide. I have personally used the Axness system in four different countries and on five different airframes. It is awesome. If you want more information, contact them today at axness.com. That's A-X-N-E-S dot com. You just make sure you tell them Quinny sent me. Life Saving Systems Corporation. They manufacture the world's toughest helicopter rescue gear. From my favorite harness as a rescueman, the Triton harness, to the rescue baskets, the litters, and of course, the most popular hook in all helicopters, the D-Lock. The team at LSE will cut bend, sew, weld, and machine these products into existence every day. We do our work so you can do yours. LSC, tough gear for tough jobs. Check them out today at lifesavingsystems.com and follow them on Instagram at Rescue Gear. That's at R-E-S-Q-G-E-A-R. And SR3 Rescue Concepts is a training company that can help with your helicopter training, a standardization and safety check, or maybe just an audit or an FAA refresher. They are here to bring your agency up to date with the most current techniques, rules, regulations, and equipment. The training staff is awesome. With the certified flight instructor pilots, experienced crew members, which I am happy to say that I am one of them, they offer training in rescue, medical, tactical, firefighting, ground operations, and night vision goggle use. SR3 is also partnered with Petzl 
to assist with personal protective equipment and the highly specific Lazard. SR-3 also goes beyond the helicopter world as they provide high angle rescue training and tactical medicine training. Contact them today at sr3rescueconcepts.com or over on Instagram at sr3 underscore rescue. In this special Memorial Day episode of The Real Rescue, we'd like to take a minute to remember United States Coast Guard rescue swimmer number 404, Mr. Fernando George. Fernando and the rest of his crew, including Lieutenant Commander Dale Taylor, Lieutenant Junior Grade Thomas Cameron, and Petty Officer 3rd Class Andrew Knight, lost their lives on 28 February 2012 in a helicopter training flight accident on helicopter 6535. I'd like to take this opportunity to remember all four crew members who lost their lives that day. May you have fair winds and following seas. My brothers, you will never be forgotten. Thank you. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. I was never personally stationed with Fernando George. But I always knew his name. The U.S. Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer world is very small. So between EMT research, survival schools, advanced rescue swimmer school, yeah, we probably ran into each other at one point or another, and or you just hear stories, lots and lots of stories. So I asked a few people to give their stories of Fernando George, and here's what they said. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce uh, one of the family members of Mr. Fernando George. Her name is Gina. How are you, Gina? Hey, good morning, Jason. Great good to morning. meet you. Great to be uh, here. Thank you so much for coming on. And you know what? I, just a quick question from you. And really, I, I'm, we're looking for a little bit of background of Fernando. You know, like prior to him getting into the Coast Guard, you know, you have a little bit of a story, a little bit of background about how and why you joined the Coast Guard and why you went rescue swimmer. So if you could, would you share that with us? Sure thing. So, I mean, Nando, since the time he was a kid, always liked to be the rescuer. And he liked being the big brother to everybody, even though he was my little brother. 
But I can tell you from the time he was a teenager and doing lifeguarding at the local pool, um, he just had a heart to help other people. He would give lessons to little kids on how to swim. And I'll never forget the day he saw this ad on TV for like the Coast Guard, you know, ad to like recruit. And so he's like, that's what I want to do when he saw the helicopter rescue <laughs> swimmer. You know, yeah. lower helicopter. <laughs> he's like, he just knew. And so, you know, we lived, um, you know, in Long Beach and then Terminal Island was probably the closest station there. And so he's like, sis, can you take me out there? And I want to check this out because they were having like an info workshop. So just drove him down there that day. Didn't know what we were going to expect. You know, he did the workshop and then towards the end, you know, when all the razzle dazzle comes, they had a H65 touchdown on the field. Rescue swimmers come out in full gear. You know, I think Fernando at that point probably heard angels and music in his head. (laughs) He just looked at me with these big eyes and he's like, that is what I'm going to do. And then we were done. Like he just signed up and that was it. So it literally was one of those, I think it was a calling for him. He knew it was what he was destined to do. He was willing to do whatever uh, jobs he was asked to do on the boats for a couple of years, going into the Antarctic, you know, the Arctic with the cutters and he didn't care. He's like, I will use a toothbrush to clean rails if it gets me to be a rescue swimmer. And that's just kind of the determination my brother had his whole life. And I'm sure all the stories his brothers in the Coast Guard will tell after me will probably be a, a good foundation for you to know that that started from long, long ago. Wow, man, that is awesome. I love the idea and the drive. God, it sounds just like me. Like I saw somebody jump out of a helicopter. I'm like, that's what I want to do right there. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah totally. So Solid. just thank you for having me. And I can't wait to hear all the stories that come because again, I've learned over the years to share that Fernando was a brother to many Um, I was just lucky enough to be the big sister, but I know that he was probably the big brother and little brother to many. So can't wait to hear all the other stories. Sweet. Gina, thank you so much for giving us a little glimpse into this. I appreciate it. Sure thing. Bye, Jason. Later. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got another guest with us. And this guy, United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 407, Mr. Sean Duran. How are you, brother? What's going on? What's going on, Jason? Another day in paradise, man. Uh, it's been a while since you and I have seen each other. We were stationed together up in Kodiak, which was an absolute pleasure for me, just so you know. <laughs> yeah, that was my second unit. That was amazing up there. Unbelievable. Oh, we, we had a good time. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's true. Oh, it's funny. So I'll tell you what, man. You, uh, you and I have talked a little bit. You know... Fernando George um, from a school. So I just want a little bit of background from like, well, you guys were, I mean, you met in a school and then you were stationed together at your first unit. So is that right? Shoot. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So okay. yeah, we met in a school. He was the class ahead of us and we ended up getting stationed together. Our first units with uh, master chief Dyer, who was chief Dyer back then. And then we actually also got stationed station together in uh, los angeles at la um air station sweet so, um, oh, that's from awesome. the, yeah from the rescue summer school point he he had like a, a bad deal going on with his his crew his guys were uh, half of them were married so they weren't even living in the barracks and he was kind of having a rough time bonding with them guys so he kind of started hanging out with us after school and that's how we started to first bond and, and grow together out there is 
just raising hell after school in uh, Virginia Beach, running around there. No, so. we didn't, Sean. We were dedicated <laughs> to our training. We did not party or anything after school. We got our proper rest and nutrients. Yes, we did. <laughs> oh, that's such a lie. Oh, anyway, oh, you know what? We celebrated every time we passed a day of school. <laughs> that is true, man. I think we might, we're probably lucky we didn't have micro brews back then. Oh, God, like, no kidding. Man, I think it was just like Red Dog, Red Dog beer. Oh, God. I remember totally that remember stuff? Yes, it was terrible. I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh. So, Anyway, yeah, we started right. bonding there. Um, he was hanging out with their class with Skimmin and Tate and the rest of us. And uh, then when I found out we were getting stationed together, people were asking me because the, the one thing with Nando is you're the love that guy or you hate that guy. You're like, oh, my God, that guy is like he just rose me the wrong way. Or you're like, that guy is the greatest guy that's ever lit. Like he's he's the greatest. He's like my brother for life. That's how it was. And, you know, that's how it was for a lot of swimmers with Skimmin and Tate and a lot of the other guys. Totally. It's like either loved us or you hated us. So that's I think that speaks volumes, though, because it just shows he he was always his true colors. And that was just how Nando was. It was like, this is who I am. Take it or leave it. So I that's I really respected that from him. So I think what really helped bond Fernando and I while we were in rescue swimmer school is we would go out and do our runs, even, even like, uh, on the weekends and stuff, we'd go out and just try to get stronger and hit the pool and just keep cranking. And we started talking one day and I made a reference to a book I had just read before rescue swimmer school. It was called the rogue warrior. It was oh, yeah. written by a seal team guy from back in the day in, in Nam. And he flipped out. He was like, are you kidding me? He goes, I swear. I just finished that book before coming to school. He goes, I I'm like, that's what really got me motivated to talk, to just come in and just kill it. Like no regrets come in here and just like give my life for this training. Like, I don't care. It's, it's going to go for it all. And we both bonded immediately after that. We learned that we both had read the same book. So we were always sharing stories and keeping each other motivated. Even those, you know, the, some of those weeks you're like, I don't even know if I, I have what it takes to be a swimmer, man. Like, you know, you start questioning yourself. Oh Yeah. And you're like, man, this is, I don't know if this is, you know, I might not be the person for this. Well, we kept each other pretty motivated. And I think that book is what really helped bond us quickly and kept us through that entire school to, to get us through it. Sick, man. Use whatever you can to get through, man. That's awesome. I love it. That is true. That's true. Yeah. So anyway, that was, um, incredible times with Fernando and the rest of the guys in school. And that we were just, we were bonded brothers from there. Awesome. And then we, we got stationed in Texas. I think that really does something. Um, when two swimmers go to a station together, the first station, I think you're bonded like brothers for life after that, no matter what. I mean, I think a lot of swimmers will totally attest to that for sure. Yeah. 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 So, Cause you just went through hell together or, you know, like yeah. school. And now you go to your first unit getting qualified together. So you're going through all the same steps together. Yep. Totally. Yeah. And then once we got to Texas, we you know we worked our butts off to get qualified as fast as possible. 
And then of course we had master, you know, master chief Dyer was the chief. So he always had a fire lit underneath us, making sure we were doing the right thing and not partying too much and getting, keeping ourselves in line. But that was pretty tough, especially in <laughs> Texas. <laughs> For two guys who just graduated from Spurman school. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I get that. I get that all day um, long. Well, well, I'll tell you the one funny story of us when we were waxing that floor. We had that the floor, the hanger deck had to be waxed and polished all the time because we were a, a big exposure with NASA being next door. A lot of high executive people walking through all the time. And I remember one time we had the, the we had just finished waxing the deck. It was slippery as heck. And Fernando decides he's going to run across the deck, slide on his belly and go underneath both helicopters. <laughs> That's how that's how far he slid on his belly. But oh my quickly, god! We quickly realized that once the the AET chief came out of the office and was screaming and yelling and poking his finger in Ch Nando's chest, we were like, "That was probably a bad idea." <laughs> <laughs> so, You're gonna rip the antennas off. You're gonna ruin oh it. God. Oh my god! I can He's see like, right oh, now. Yeah. He's like, you know how many and little antennas are underneath that plane. <laughs> Oh, good Lord. But that's back in the day, I think, when you could still yell and scream and, and push people around without getting busted. Oh, dang, that's funny. What was Nando's reaction? Was he just like, oh, I screwed up or what? So most of the time, it didn't matter who talked to Fernando. If you were trying to reprimand him, he would somehow figure a way out to out talk you and win the conversation. But... I thought for sure he was going to start talking back to the chief. And man, when he sat there and kept his mouth shut and was like, yes, chief. Yes, chief. Okay, chief. No, <laughs> never again. chief. I was like, oh, yeah, he pretty much knows he screwed up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. And that's in the third class. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, yeah. Even as a third class, you know, like, oh. There's been a few swimmers that can talk their way out of everything, man. There's, but you know, there's, I don't know what it is about rescue swimmers, man. They can talk their way out of everything. I don't know so. what you're talking about. It never worked for me. <laughs> I had Olaf and George and they looked, yeah, get, get your ass back over there. Uh, all right. That definitely didn't work for me either, man. Yeah. I, couldn't, I would just take the ass whipping and keep, and just walk away. Totally. Oh, that's so funny. Nice. Oh. Uh. All right, Sean. So, well, I mean, you guys were together for like four years in, in, uh, oh yeah, four years in, in Texas. Yeah. Four years in Texas. And, uh, he ended up doing a, a round the world cruise, which really got him a lot of experience, um, in just so many different ways. So out of Texas, like he, he went out of Houston to do it. Yeah. So he went on a cutter with the 65, uh, yep. bird and they went around the world and they did a full tour and he, man, he saw some amazing places, came back with amazing stories, and just, it was just an incredible trip. Wow. So, oh, that's yeah. awesome. It's pretty awesome. Very so, cool. After that, uh, um, I think he needed that too, because there are some, uh, we went through some hell in Texas, and the rescues too, the rescues were pretty gnarly. Our first year, we'd call back to talk to some of our other swimmer buddies that were, you know, graduated with us. And they were like, Oh, we've got like four or five rescues. And 
we've done like over a hundred at that point in the first year. It was crazy. The amount of rescues we did in Texas. So do you by chance remember any of the rescues that he did that he would have come back and talked about or. Um, so for Texas, I can't remember anything huge that, cause some of them were just very uh, weird. Some of them were like, uh, a guy made his own helicopter and tried to fly it and crashed into a, a an antenna that was 150 feet up and then he had to be rescued. I mean, this, you know, the stuff you can get away with in Texas is, you know, <laughs> crazy. It's like, there's no laws requiring you to do anything like unsafe, like you just do it and you can just go off and get yourself in trouble. And then we'd have to go rescue you for whatever reason. Jeez, old man. Uh, other than Houston, uh, with him and I, we basically just worked on getting in the best shape of our lives and um, just practicing all the time, just practicing different techniques of rescue techniques to like our, our job, um, doing swim stuff to even out in the uh, ocean, just doing stuff that uh, we would just think of the worst possible scenario and then try to reenact it and go for it. You know, and then of course, you know, like when you do a rescue, you come back and you're like, oh man, I'm like, I got to work harder on this, this, and this. So that's exactly what we would do is just work hard and play hard too. And, uh, and then just one funny story from when we were first on the hangar deck, our very first day, we walked across and a, a huge Canadian guy that was uh, stationed in the Coast Guard, he was an AMT. He came across, he came out of his office and he looked at us and he's like, because we're both pretty dark for, you know, our skin color is pretty dark. It was summertime, yep. come across there. And he literally just was like, there's only two types of music here on this hangar deck, country and Western. So don't even think about playing any of that hip hop crap because he, he knew we were both from California. So <laughs> Fernando <laughs> just starts laughing. And so then he made a reference to us being Mexicans and Fernando's like, I'm your Iguan, you idiot. <laughs> So he always started, he always had to correct people on like where he was from because he's from Uruguay and people were just automatically assumed that he's from Mexico. That is so hilarious. <laughs> he was always having to correct people. And, um, but that was great because he wouldn't, he wouldn't hesitate, man. He would just go right in your face and like, let me educate you, boy. Like, <laughs> you're an idiot. So. Oh, that then, is fantastic. I love it. <laughs> And, and then we just had fun. Like when we got stationed in LA, he, he did a bunch of TV shows, uh, tactical, the practical Nickelodeon, um, just, the, uh, just different TV shows, little things that he would uh, be involved with, or I would be involved with. And, um, so I'm sure those things are floating around somewhere, um, of him doing some of that stuff, but yeah, we had, we had some really good times together for sure. Man, that is awesome. Dude, that's great. I, I love these stories, man. These, these are like, it's that the whole shop camaraderie that we have just, and the brotherhood just laughing about random stuff. I mean, it's, and the stupid shit we do. And you're like, oh, that probably wasn't a good idea. That's hilarious. He had, he had amazingly dry humor, man. He could, he could always crack in jokes and, and pulling pranks on everybody. It was, it was good times, man. That's awesome. Dude, Sean, thank you for sharing just a little glimpse of your life with Fernando. It's, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, and 
I'm so glad we get to do this to remember him. So I appreciate it. Absolutely, Jay. Thank you so much for putting this all together and doing this. I know it's a lot of work and you're trying to wrangle everybody and get them all scheduled for their appointments that, who sometimes don't make it on time. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> what you're talking about, being, Sean. <laughs> sorry for being late. I really appreciate it, Jason. Thank you so much, man. You're welcome, brother. I, uh, I look forward to talking to you again soon, man. Absolutely. Cool. Later. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to introduce our next guest. He's going to give us another couple more stories about Mr. Fernando George. And that is our brother, United States Coast Guard, rescue swimmer, number 450, Mr. Ed Hanna. What's up, my brother? How are you? I'm doing well, man. How are you? I'm good, man. Thanks for coming on and sharing a couple stories with you and Fernando. Um, you and I talked a bit offline already, but you guys were stationed together uh, in Houston, which was your first unit out of school. And him and Sean Duran had just graduated a little bit prior to. So basically the three of you guys coming in as third class, busting butt to get qualified and go flying. So, yeah. and that's, that's where you met him, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, Fernando and Sean, you know, they came and met me that, you know, I'm, literally drove into Houston, uh, that night, uh, like a Sunday night, I was going to, you know, going into the shop first thing Monday morning and they, uh, they met me and you know, took me out for, for a dinner and a, and a drink. And, you know, they were kind of like, uh, my mentors, you know, Fernando was, you know, always kind of that, uh, he was always the guy that, you know, I knew I could go to, um, you know, if I had a question and learning the ropes and everything, um, Fernando actually was the one that I got to go out on my first uh, night duck flight with. Um, I was kind of uh, graduated from school February 13th, uh, Friday, February the 13th. On, and, uh, and so I. What a we were, day. You know, yeah, no, right? <laughs> so, you know, like two weeks later, you know, I'm, I'm there at the shop and I'm still waiting for my orders to go to uh, MT research, you know, kind of thing. So, you know, kind of in this limbo stage and. You know, and they were like, well, you know, friend, Fernando's got, you know, a flight tonight. He's got to do some swarm work. You go and be his duck. You know, I'm like, great, cool. You know, this is awesome. You know, I get to use my gear that I actually just, you know, just give me, you know. So Make sure you pull it all out of plastic. <laughs> right, right, yeah. I got all exactly. the tags pulled off. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I am, uh, you know, so, you know, we're hopping in, you know, and I'm actually getting to fly in the 65, you know, uh, you know, I, I, and it probably well, I'll have to go back and look at my flight records, but I think it may have even been my first flight in the 65. Oh, that's cool. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, so in, in Houston, you know, it's set there at Eglinton Field, you know, so you've got some NASA stuff there. You've got some Air National Guard stuff there. Um, there was like a, a continental, um, you know, um, airport there, you know, um, uh, for commercial flights and stuff like that. But, uh, when you take off and you go south towards Galveston, uh, Clear Lake is just like this little lake that's kind of just off the, the, the Galveston Bay there. And I mean, it's like a minute and a half of flight time to get there. Okay. So we take off, it's dark. And next thing, you know, I hear the, you know, the pilots on the radio, you know, the, the, that, uh, uh, that the, uh, the group, you know, was calling us and saying, Hey, you know, We've got this flare sighting, you know, so I've been, you know, I've been around for a while, you know, it was three years before I got to go to school. So I, you know, yeah. I had some boat experience and small boat experience. And when I hear flare sighting, I'm thinking, 
great. That's like four, yeah, you're right. Yeah, four <laughs> hours on the water, sitting there bobbing up and down, seeing absolutely nothing, you know. But Fernando, man, I mean, he was just like, yes, yeah. I mean, he's like ripping out his gear and throwing his fins on. He's got a snorkel, you know, a massive snorkel. And he was just like, he was all ready to go. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my gosh, maybe this is different. Maybe this is like something real, you know. So I'm like, like going, crap, what do I do? (laughs) You know, like I was like. How, how do I assist? You know, I'm just like thinking I'm the newbie, you know, like I've just never happened before, but he was so jazzed. He got out those MVGs, you know, and he got all hooked up and he was like, hand me, you know, handed me a set and it was like, here, put them on, you know? So it was the first time I ever used MVGs, ever set them up, didn't even know what to do with them really, you know? So, you know, we're just getting everything together. And, uh, you know, so it was just like, you know, you had the mech move to one side. I was able to go to the other side. And I mean, we flew for, I don't know how many hours on it, you know, before, you know, we came back and there was a a nothing burger, you know, but Fernando didn't lose that enthusiasm, you know, all the way through. He was just hyped, you know, and he was just so, it was like, you know, if there was somebody that needed help, Fernando was the guy that was going to go down and do it, get the job done, you know? And, uh, that was just, that was phenomenal. You know, that was just, uh, such a great experience to just to see, like, you know, I, I can be excited about this job. You know, (laughs) and uh, it doesn't, you know, I don't have to, you know, I don't know, worry about, you know, whatever, you know, he was just, you know, he was just always so enthused uh, and very enthusiastic, uh, you know, so it was just, that was like one of my best memories of having with, I had with Fernando. Oh, that is hilarious, man. Going out, he's all jazzed up in the back of the aircraft. Let's yeah. do this. It's a flare sighting, bro. <laughs> it didn't and the matter. worst it part about it is like, it was, right, but we've all done that. Like you, right. you get, you're like a flare sighting. Oh, come on. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Oh, yeah, that's freaking awesome. Yeah, Way no, to go, he, Fernando. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, exactly, man. And he uh, he carried that excitement all the way through. You know, the two, you know, sixty fives. You don't have that much, you know, flight time in them. You know, like two two and a half hours max. You know, so he but he carried the enthusiasm all the way through. You know, and he was when we landed, he was ready to turn that thing around and go back out if that's what it was needed. You know, oh, that's um, awesome. He just loved the job. You know, he just loved the job of being a rescue swimmer and. Even in the shop, you know, he was um, he he loved doing the maintenance too. You know, it wasn't like he was just one sided. You know, one of those one sided bros. You know, right. he was like he was. You know, um, it was an ASM back in the day, right? So yep. I graduated ASM, aviation right? survival man. And you know, we've we've uh, talked about that here a little bit. Yeah. So uh, we were ASMs then, you know, and uh, he. But he was that full, well-rounded guy, you know, that he was the, not only the swimmer, but he was, you know, whether we were working out, you know, whatever, you know, he, we were going, you know, 100% at it, you know, or if we was in the shop, you know, he was doing it and uh, he was doing it, doing it right. You know, he was, uh, he wasn't, he didn't like the shortcuts, you know, from, from the way he taught me, you know, so, and I appreciated that, you know, I, I learned well under Fernando, uh, and Sean, of course, you know, I mean, those guys were, you know, we'd hang out after work or whatever, you know, um, you know, Fernando actually, um, he, my, I was engaged when I came to Houston 
my wife and I, we got married while I was in Houston. And our first Thanksgiving, we invited Fernando over. And right. so, you know, he, I have pictures of him laying out on the couch, you know, just, you know, just oh, having too much trip to, uh, tryptophan, right? From the turkey, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and we were just, I mean, we ate so much, you know, but I mean, it was just, he really helped me connect his family, you know? He, That's you know, cool. on the base, outside the base, you know, it was always just kind of a, it was, it was a brotherhood thing, you know, with he and I, and he was just uh, always so warm and inviting. Um, yeah, I, I'm like thinking of like got all these memories, you know, like uh, we used to, you know, the times we would go and do uh, trainings with like the, the, the fire department, the heavy rescue there in Houston, yep. you know, uh, Fernando, you know, he was the one who introduced me to, you know, the key players and that, you know, and uh, we would do, uh, we would work with NASA with the astronauts. We'd help teach survival skills to the astronauts and do stuff in the pool uh, with them. Um, you know, it was just, you know, just all the experiences that I had with Fernando there in Houston, you know, just lifelong memories. For oh, sure. that's awesome. Oh, yeah. that's so cool, man. So cool. Uh, now, obviously, uh, you guys had done almost a full tour together because how long was it before, like, he got there and then you got there, what, like a couple months later, a year later? I, I don't know how much. It probably was probably close to a year. Okay. Um, so you guys might have done three years together. That's, that's Yeah, we did three solid years there. Yeah, I was there when he transferred off to L.A. from Houston. Uh, and Sean, Sean went up north. I can't remember if it was Humboldt or Port Angeles. I can't remember um, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, I'll go but ahead. yeah, you know, and the shop changed dramatically, you know, after, you know, the two of them left. I mean, because the two of them were like peas in a pod, you know. Uh, you, you mean could it, not it dulled the down two. a little bit? The, the like, I, it just kind of slowed? <laughs> yeah, just, uh, you know, it was... Just the pranks, you know? Oh, my gosh. My first Stan visit, okay? Lou Britt came and did it, all right? And... Oh, going already. Oh, God. He... You know, so we had to... We didn't fly out with a helicopter because, of course, there's no space and 65s can't handle it. And it's hot as crap down there in Houston, you know? So we would travel down to Galveston to the small boat station and then take the boats out. And then, you know, stand work up there with, you know, the pilots and, and the mech, they would do their stuff. And then they, we would come and, and they would come over to the boat and we would do our stuff with them. Right. So so we're sitting there and we're going out and we're seeing this green line just going down the gunnel on the 41 footer. Right. And I'm like looking around, like going, you guys got some antifreeze or something like that, that is just like what you know you know i'm like trying to figure out what this is you know they've got their mechanic going down into the engine space and everything looking around you know and they're trying to figure it out and and so it finally gets to the time to where you know the helicopter comes in it's time for me to lose like all right so you jump off first or you know he was like i'll jump off first and then you jump off and and then we'll we'll get started so i was the first one to go out of the group and Lou jumps in, he, he's off, and then I jump in, and no lie, it was just a cloud of green. They had doused all, everything, everything of mine was doused 
and seed eye. And it was just, and Lou was like, get away from me. He's like, go swim around, get that stuff out of you. You know? And I was just like, oh my gosh, Fernando. (laughs) It was like, he got me so good. They were like, oh, they were laughing. They were just laughing so hard. Oh gosh. But I mean, that, that started the infamous, you know, sea dye marker wars within the shop, you know, so we we're trying to figure out how to put it in the shower heads, you know, wherever it was, we were. <laughs> so, oh, God, I love oh, shop pranks. It's terrible. Oh, yeah, it was. Oh, man. So, yeah, he got me good on my first stand check, man. My Oh, he got me so good. <laughs> it was just like I was finding bits of it still uh, like a week afterwards, you know. He had it oh. put in every single crevice that he That's could put good. on you know on my trisar, you know. It was just it was so bad. <laughs> oh my oh, gosh. god. That is hilarious. Well played, sir. Well played. Mm-hmm. I, I gotta tell you, man, this is this is gonna be a good way to end this this little section right here and and just leave all, all, all of us laughing about Fernando because yeah. that was awesome. Yeah. So yeah. brother, thank you for coming on and sharing some of the stories and experiences with Fernando George because he's his memory he's missed and loved, yeah. and this is a good way to to remember him forever. So yeah, yeah. Thank you for the opportunity, man. I mean, it's it's been good to remember. Fernando this way, you know, so uh, I appreciate you for putting the work in on this, Jason. And uh, gosh, you know, yeah, Fernando will live on for sure. You know, absolutely. And anybody that does a seed eye marker prank. Yeah. Now you can think about (laughs) Fernando. (laughs) Thanks, brother. I'll uh, I'll catch up with you soon, man. I'll see you. All right. Bye. Ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) we've got another rescue swimmer with me. Which is, uh, which is awesome because he's going to give us a couple more stories about Fernando George. His name, Mr. Jason Edmondson, United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer, number 438. What's up, my brother? How are you? What's going on, Jason? I'm great. How are you? Dude, I'm fantastic. Um, all right, so let's get right started. Where did you meet Fernando George? So Fernando was my sponsor when I was transferring from North Bend to Poptive in Mobile. So we had talked on the phone and emailed, you know, uh, through the whole process. And then uh, I think I met him, I don't know, a couple of days, uh, a day or two, maybe after I got into town, uh, we met up, you know, uh, to show me around and whatnot as my sponsor. And we just uh, started hanging out, became bros right away. Well, that's easy. Nice. Now, you know what, yeah. it, I, we've talked to a couple guys, including um, Sean Duran and stuff, and, and he made the comment, you know, Fernando is one of those guys, you either love him or you hate him. So what was your take? You know, it is very, very true, because I knew I had a lot of friends that I was buddies with that couldn't stand him. They couldn't stand him. He He's a big personality, man. I mean, he if he's easy – he intimidates people easily because of his personality. He's the life of a party. And a lot of people, that's just too much for them to handle. Right. And they don't like it. He's just always hyper. He's go, go, go. He's a lot of things. Um, yeah. I, I, I loved it. I loved his energy. Uh, you know, he, he was always, he, he'll do anything for a friend, anything. 
Um, yeah, I mean, he, he's, he was just a fantastic friend and human being. Man, that's awesome. I love it. Uh, now, you guys, while you were down at PopDiv, you guys ended up in Antarctica together, which was uh, not yep. a normal thing, because normally with yep. Antarctica, uh, you'd send an icebreaker down, the Coast Guard would send an icebreaker down there, and they would send one helicopter with one rescue swimmer. How the heck did you guys both end up down there? So it was the winter of 2001 to 2002. Fernando was on the South trip scheduled, went on down there. Um, shortly after they got there, uh, they, the, the boats determined that the ice was way too thick uh, for one boat to be able to break it. Um, you know, it's a whole global warming thing, right? Anyway, right, of course. Uh, and, <laughs> so the ice was super, super thick and super long. Like it was like record. And so we immediately uh, spooled up another half avdet uh, instead of two helicopters and that amount of people it was one helicopter and half the people. Um, so we spooled up and immediately got everything going really quick, flew out to Seattle, got on a boat and charged down there. And it, so it was the first time ever that two icebreakers and two avdets had been down on, uh, in Antarctica together, which also means the first time ever two rescue swimmers were in Antarctica at the same time. And that doesn't spell trouble at all. <laughs> no, no. One, one rescue swimmer in Antarctica is enough. Trust me. Trust me. Uh, God, there's so many stories about that trip, but yeah. Well, give me, give me one or two of them. Okay. So I'll tell you one. This doesn't have to do with Fernando, but this is just really funny. So obviously I've never been to Antarctica. So once we get within flight range, we, the boat pulls into the ice and we offload the entire Avdet stuff, all of our tools, everything. And it's a whole day basically of doing external loads from ship to shore. And then we set up our stuff. We have a little, it's, it's like a portable trailer hut is what we call them. Um, that's where we set up like our base of operations. We get all that set up and that's the end of the, that's the end of the day. And I mean, it's, it's a long, at least a 12, 14 hour day, right? We're exhausted. So we head up to go get our rooms and check in, like, you know, because we got to get assigned a room and all this stuff. So we go into this place and um, there's uh, two girls sitting behind this table. One of them's pretty cute. And they're like, and we, we kind of walk in and one girl looks up and goes, are you Jason Edmiston? I'm in fucking Antarctica, right? Sorry. And, and a, a chick goes, are you Jason Emerson? I, I look and everybody in the abdet looked at me and they're like, you said you'd never been here. I said, dude, I've never been to Antarctica. This is my first time here. They're like, people know who you are. And I'm like, I don't know if I should be nervous or what. I'm like, um, yeah, I, I, I am him. Do like, I owe you oh money? Oh my God, I've heard so much about you. And I'm like, um, how? She goes, oh, Fernando. Fernando talks about you. He told us you were coming down. I'm like, oh, my God. I'm like, bro, this is, this is starting way too early. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That was my introduction to Antarctica right there. And Fernando helped you out. Oh, what a nice guy. <laughs> what, a, what a player, man. What a buddy. 
setting you up for success before you even arrive. Oh, buddy. Always, always, always. Man, that's always. hilarious. That's hilarious. But the best story I have of Antarctica was, um, so, you know, because there was two abdets and everything down there, there was a lot of, uh, let's just say, brass coming down to check out things. You know, they wanted to see how this was functioning, how this was working, you know, the whole political thing. So we're in one of the bars in Antarctica one night. Um, and lo and behold, a two star and his aide are hanging out in the bar. So Fernando gives me the little elbow and goes, dude, dude, check it out. Admiral's sitting over there. Let's go hit him up. And I was like, okay. So about that time his aide walked away. So we go over and we, we were a few drinks in at this point. Cause you know, in Antarctica, every drink is $2. So, you know, you just, whatever captain and coke's two dollars beer two dollars whatever so um, yes please we're, we're yeah we're, <laughs> we're a few deep we're having fun and so we go over and this the guy's kind of standing there and i know it's hard to explain this i'll do the best over i can over a podcast fernando kind of gives the lean with the arm against the wall and then i position next to him so now we have him completely trapped right in this corner <laughs> And Fernando leans in real close and goes, hey, Admiral, how are you doing? And the Admiral's like, fine. He's like, hey, I'm, I'm Fernando George, and this is Jason Edmiston. And I want you to know that we're both rescue swimmers. And this is the first time ever there's been two rescue swimmers down here in Antarctica. You're looking at them right now. We're making history. And this guy's just like, uh-huh. And so Fernando just continues to just like talk and talk and talk and it's just like make – do you understand how big of a deal this is? You know, there's only a few of us. And now there's two of us here. And, and this guy just was looking around, was hoping his aide was going to come back and, and rescue him, but it wasn't <laughs> happening. And I don't know how long we sat there and talked to that guy or, or Fernando talked at him, I should say. Uh, but it was a while and it was hilarious. It was great. Captive audience. Oh, God, that's awesome. You know, it makes you wonder, like, if the Admiral went back to headquarters and been like, all right, these swimmer guys, we really got to, uh, we got we to gotta do something about them. <laughs> if I go back down there again, I'm going to need at least one other aid for body protection <laughs> at all times. Yeah. Oh, God, that's hilarious. I love it. Oh, dude, that's so funny. Yeah, we had a good time down there. Good times. Yeah. So after Antarctica, you guys kind of went your separate ways to separate units and then ended up meeting back up again. Yeah. So he went to LA. Um, and then uh, cause I was a year behind him in polar ops. So he left to LA and then I went to the shop a year later and then I went to, uh, Ulti prime when he came back. So in 2007, he came back to Mobile, and I was down in Alti Prime. Which is still uh, in I Mobile. Mean, so you, you stayed in yeah, Mobile. Yeah. So you went from PopDiv yeah. to the shop and then to Alti Prime. For everybody that doesn't know, that's a it's like three units in one big unit, and you can bounce around um, a little bit between and still stay in, like, the area. So – Cool. Yeah. All right. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we'd, we'd hung out a couple of times while he was in LA. I was out there and stuff like that, but yeah. So we got stationed back together when he, uh, came back 2007. Yep. And you guys, uh, you guys were first class at the time. Mm -hmm. We both were first classes. Yep. 
So you had a little authority going around telling people what to do. <laughs> little experience. Yeah, uh, he, yeah, he was he was first before me. He came in and was running the shop. You know, he was he was the lead first class in the shop there, and I was down in prime unit, just kind of doing my thing. You know, because just me and a senior chief down there. So. So because you guys are in different shops, like I haven't been to Mobile in a long time, but is it, uh, are you guys connected, same building or are you guys separated all together? Same building. So we're both in the hangar. I was just downstairs of the hangar um, in Cubicle City and he was up in the <laughs> shop uh, on the hangar floor. Right on. So how often did you guys get to see each other while you were working there? Oh, all the time. Like uh, almost daily, we would go to lunch together or uh, we'd work out together here and there. Um, you know, he had different workouts than I like to do typically, but occasionally we would work out together or we'd play volleyball together. Uh, lunch, we, we did get lunch a lot. And, you know, I come up to the shop a lot to run through cards and do do work and, and stuff like that. So we, so we speaking worked, of we running together. Through and then there was... Yeah, they're running through cards. You know, I, I got to bring this up because it's pretty funny. You go ahead. Just take it. So there was a point where I was working on the brand new crew raft. And it was a pretty big undertaking. And we we kind of, I don't remember how we pulled this off, but we got him basically TAD down to all C prime for three months to work with me. So it was me and Fernando. <laughs> sitting at my desk in cubicle city, writing the card. Now, anybody that knows how me and Fernando work, we're the best of friends, but we have totally different views at work and like how to accomplish something at work. And we would argue and bicker like a married couple. Like anybody that knows us knows that that's how we were. We would like yell at each other and argue. And, and, and but I mean, we didn't care. We weren't fighting. We were just, that's just how we were. We're both very passionate people. And the people would all the time stand up in the cubicles. You two need to stop fucking arguing. Would you guys shut up? God, you're like a bunch of old married couple. You know, and we would, we would just <laughs> laugh or whatever. So we were down there causing chaos, working through a card. Uh, we did that, yeah, for three months, which was a lot of fun to work hand in hand on that card uh, with him. Yeah, and for people that don't understand or know this, is when you're you're basically writing the maintenance procedure, which is going to go out to the rest of the fleet, and you're trying to get all the the bugs out of the writing because when it goes out of the fleet, you're going to get all these changes. Like, oh, it shouldn't say this; it needs to say this. So you're testing it on guys left and right. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When you know when you get to the product that you feel is pretty close to complete, we take it up and. First of all, we would give it to two new thirds and go, okay, perform the card. Here's the card. Here's the raft. Go. And we would watch and take notes. And we would say like, hey, if anything is confusing, let us know. And we'd highlight it. So they do the whole procedure card and then we'd repack it and do everything. And then we'd hand it to usually a senior second class and a first class again and say, here's the card. Here's the raft. Do it. Tell us if anything doesn't sound right or what you would think. And we'd take notes. And then we'd go back to the drawing board, make changes, tweaks uh, by, from the notes and what they said, and then do it again. And Beautiful. you kind of keep doing that until you feel like you have a finished product. And it goes out of the fleet and all the changes start coming back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yep, because <laughs> you know, a hundred people are going to say this. It should say this word, and then a hundred people are going to say that same word should say something else. And you know, you, everybody win. has their own interpretation of how to say something. Yeah, <laughs> keep it simple, man. That's what I say. I like it. Yeah. Um, you yeah. brought up some workouts. So Fernando had some interesting workouts. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So he was doing med ball before med ball was cool. That's what I like to say. So he called it his med ball workout or his med ball mile. So when you first come into mobile on the right hand side, is this ginormous open field and about every, I don't know, 25, 30 yards is a tree. And it stretches for about a good 200 yards. And then before you hit concrete again, he would go out there with his 20 pound med ball and he would start at the first tree and he would do either a different throw or whatever. And then he would have to do something to it. Maybe it was lunge all the way to the med ball and then throw it again, lunge to the med ball, or he would jog to it and then have to do 10 push-ups and then throw it. And he would do that. And then when he got to the end, he'd pick up the med ball and then you'd have to run with it all the way back with your arms extended, right? Okay. And then you'd go back and then you would do it again. And you would call like, okay, this time we're going to do 20 flutter kicks every time we get to the ball, or we're going to do sit-ups or we're going to do whatever. And you would do that. And basically until you accomplished a mile uh, and he calls it his med ball mile. Dang, man. <laughs> That's pretty legit. Like it was, it was a fun, it was a fun workout. It was a, it was a really good. Um, yeah, he, he, he did that a lot. Fernando's med ball mile. I might actually have to try yep. that. Go grab the 20 pounder and just start going back and forth around the track or whatever yeah, it, it is. It was fun because we would do different throws. Like sometimes you'd throw it backwards, you know, like the keg throw or sometimes yeah. you'd chest throw, you know, or, you know, there was all different ways you could throw it and then you'd have to do something to it or run to it and then do something when you got to it. So, I mean, you're not throwing a 20 pound ball more than 20 yards probably, you know, so it yeah. takes a while to get down to the end <laughs> and, then, and then run it back and rinse and repeat. Yeah. And you're doing that for a full mile. Yeah. yeah. Suddenly I'm, I'm yeah. writing that entire workout into the next uh, program that I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh they're gonna hate me and i'm just gonna blame it on fernando i'm gonna be like oh this is nando there you go, there you go. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> that's awesome all right uh, i'm gonna change gears a little bit because you and him had done some swimmer flights together um now in the coast guard one of the bonuses about having like different training flights especially being in mobile is you're training a lot of pilots a lot of air crew members and a lot of times you have to have two swimmers on the helicopter and when we go out a swimmer and swimmer, man, I, dude, I've had some of the best swimmer flights ever when you have two swimmers in the water. So how many, how many flights did you guys Definitely. take together? Uh, you know, we didn't take probably as many as he did with probably the other guys in the shop because I was in prime unit. Um, but we, we took a few, we, any, I mean, if there was an opportunity, we, we definitely would do it. Um, there, of course they were always fun. Uh, like you said, yeah. <laughs> but towards the end. So, uh, gosh, I'm trying to remember when this was, uh, and I, and that picture I, I showed you, I wish I had a date on it. If I had to guess, 
it had to have been towards the end. It had to have been around like September because we were in wetsuits or shorty wetsuits, I think. So that was like September, October, probably mobile time of 2011. So probably about six months before he passed. We we did a swim flight together and we were on a 60 and uh, we were having fun like usual, whatever. And so I, I'm getting, I'm sliding to the door. I'm getting ready to, to go out. And he reaches over and pops my toggle and plates my vest. <laughs> and, and I turn to him and I'm cussing him out. He's laughing and the flight mech's laughing. And now I'm sitting there trying to deflate my vest, flipping him off, pat and mad. I get into the water. I'm using the water to try and you know, blow all the air out of it. But I'm like, I'm going to get him. I'm going to get him back. So he's laughing. He gets in the water. We finished the swimmer flight, whatever. Everything was good. We go back to the locker room and I said, Hey, Hey, this is probably like one of our last flights. Let's, uh, let's do a picture. You know, he's like, yeah, okay. That's, that's a great idea. So I don't remember who, but somebody in the locker room was like, Hey, do me a favor, take a picture of us make sure you count to three. Like, okay. So we, we stand there and we're, you know, arm, you know, buddies, you know, taking a picture and he goes one, two, three. And I pulled his toggle. And so I showed you the picture that still stays on my fridge of him inflated. And he's like pointing at me, like yelling at me. Uh, I got oh. it back. It was great. It was a lot of fun. So that's, oh. that's a, that picture stays on my fridge and always reminds me of good times and uh, us being crazy. Yeah. Oh, dude, I love it. Freaking awesome. I love doing sort of flights with brother swimmers, man. It is so fun. It, and you can't yeah. explain it uh, to anybody else. Like, they, you just don't get it. it, you know? It's like two kids getting to go do recess together, right? You just, yeah. you get to go do shenanigans and you're, you're both in your element. You're having fun. It's, you're just, you're, and you're just being goofy. Like how much stupid shit can we do? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're going to go up in the basket? spin a yeah. Up you go, buddy. <laughs> you know? In the basket, oh. ha, 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 you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my yeah. God, I love it. So fun. Dude, that's hilarious. I'm glad you got him back too. That's that's funny. So. Oh yeah, it was never not going to get him back. I had to get him. <laughs> but to have evidence to it with the picture makes it even better. That's just, you know, like the icing on the cake. Oh yeah, you might've gotten into Hilo, but I got evidence. <laughs> right, that's right. <laughs> Oh, shit. That's funny. All right. So now you guys, uh, yourself, Nando and Matt High all made the cut to promote to chief. And mm -hmm. at that point, you guys are about to get promoted. And then everybody's got to go to a new shop. Everybody's leaving. So you guys have a party to celebrate. All right. So, yeah. So we... Fernando made it first because he was number one on the list. I think Matt High was number three on the list. And I was way down number eight. Uh, and you and guys so, all made it? God bless. Yeah, yeah. That, so the original cut was six. And then they revised it to, I think, eight. And then they ended up that year going all the way to 15. Uh, Dang. But anyway. So... So we knew in December, we knew that all of us were making it. Uh, I mean, we knew way back in like September or so that both of them were making it, but 
we knew in December that I was going to make it. So, we, uh, you know, we started talking and he's like, dude, the three of us just should go together and, and throw our promotional party together. I was like, that's a great idea. You know, all banks, and I said, plus we're all transferring. We can, we can kill, you know, two birds with one stone, all three of us. So we, we, we said, that's a great idea. And he's like, what's your schedule? I have Matt High's schedule because he was on stand team. So he's like, you know, I know what his, I, I, he gave me all of his dates. That he's uh, out of town. So we know what we can do. He goes, what's your schedule with your daughter? I said, every other weekend, I don't have her. And he's like, okay. So we were looking at the calendar and I'm like, you know, we should do this in like April. And he's like, no, no, no. Let's, it's gotta be, we gotta do it sooner. And I was like, well, I said, that's easy for you guys. I said, I, I probably won't have made it by then. I'm hoping I make it by April or May. And I said, and plus then it's our going way. We'll just do it just before we leave. And he's like, no, nope, no, nope. we need to do it sooner. And I was like, okay, fine. How about March? He's like, nope, it needs to happen before March 1st. And this is like mid-January. And I'm like, why does it have to happen so early? Why? Why? He goes, I don't know. It just does. Before March 1st, we need to do it. He goes, Matt High is available these weekends, the last two weekends before March. And I'm like, okay, well, then I don't have my daughter the last weekend of February. I guess we shoot for them. He goes, perfect. So we'll do it February 20, let's see, 25th, February 25th. We'll do it. That's a Saturday. I'm like, okay, there you go. It's before March 1st. We'll do it. So February 25th, we, uh, you know, he had some connections to Buffalo Wild Wings and stuff like that, which by the way, the Buffalo Wild Wings, if you're ever in Mobile, go to Buffalo Wild Wings in Mobile. They have a Raider jersey with Fernando's na name on it hanging up behind the bar. Um, oh, that's awesome. So, well done, Buffalo Wild yeah. Wings. Yeah, yeah, he was, he was, uh, he was, he knew them very well there. So anyway, so they gave us, they have like a party room, like a, a private room. So they let us have the, that, that room and we just threw our party there. So Saturday night, yeah, we throw down uh, a pretty, pretty, pretty big shindig. And uh, there's some pictures and I sent you, you sent you one. So Matt High left a little early. So he paid like his, third of the tab and left and at the end of the night me and fernando i have a picture of us holding up the, the two thirds on the wall and i have another picture i didn't send it to you but i can if you you want but it's not a great picture but it's just funny because it's both of us sitting at a table with our heads down and our hands trying to figure out a tab like how much we're supposed to tip on this sort of a bill and we're half well not half we're shit housed and we're <laughs> trying to crunch numbers and he's like, well, what are you going to tip? I'm like, I I'm not sure. What are you going to tip? And we're sitting over there trying to figure this out together. It's a pretty funny photo that somebody took and I have. But, um, but the, the ironic thing about the whole, the whole story is he was adamant about having this party March, before March 1st. And he died February 28th. Wow. It, 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 it's, it's very weird uh how that happened it is just one of those things that you know people say like people almost have intuitiveness when something like this is going to happen it's, it's weird but he just was adamant before march 1st that we have this party and he said the date before march 1st on numerous occasions so uh yeah so we were fortunate enough that within 72 hours of his passing he had a huge party with all of his friends in the area we all got to have one last hurrah with him.
Um, so it was pretty awesome. That is amazing. That is that is unreal. So I know uh, we talked about this before. So Fernando loved his Guinness. Um, <laughs> I also, I have a yep. couple pictures from that night too with him drinking Guinness that night. So whenever we go to functions, uh, a lot of times you'll see um, if it, if it has anything to do with him, there'll always be a Guinness glass. Or if you go to his memorial in Mobile, typically there's a Guin a bottle or a can of Guinness at his uh, memorial. People, whenever people visit, they typically leave one there. And the, the command is great about not picking them up. Um, they let them stay there. I don't know how long, but or at least they used to let them stay there for a while. So uh, yeah, he's a big Guinness drinker, so we always just leave him one for him. So that ties into the just ones. Just so one. There is, yep. So, You'll see a lot of us uh, have shirts, uh, sweatshirts, whatever that say just one on it. So whenever Fernando wanted you to go out, he it was kind of like uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, you know, he'll keep calling me, he'll keep calling me. You know, like when <laughs> when uh, the guy's sitting in the car and Ferris is like, "You should come up, come get me, come get me, come get me." You know, and he, he's like. That's Fernando. Like you're just like, oh my God! If he wanted you to come out, he would just be, why? What do you got? Come, we're just gonna have one drink, just one, just one, and that's what they always would say. And any time he said just one, it, it was never gonna be just one. Those were typically the worst nights. Those were usually the ones that was opposite of just one. It was when the nights that he didn't say we're gonna have just one that was safer than to go out. But if he said just one. That's how he'd get you. He would rope you in and you would think you would learn, but nope. So that was his big saying, just one. So that's why uh, we the shirts were made and we raised a bunch of money to give to the Coast Guard Foundation through those shirts. Um, just one. Yep. I love it. And uh, you're just one. Actually, you have a couple stories there with with uh, there was a, a local bar there that was had like a five dollar cover charge and then penny drinks. So, okay, so, so the, that was the a, just that was one <laughs> would happen more often than not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we were young. So that was when I first was in pop. We were in pop together. So we both were, you know, mid twenties. Oh, so this is back classes. when you first got together. First knew each other. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh -huh. So you learned the second time uh -huh. around not to do that so much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I was like twenty five. 27 ish so he was probably 29 30th 30 somewhere in there and uh we both were second classes popped in so there was this place downtown in mobile uh on thursday nights i think it was the first thursday of the month or something like that it was a five dollar cover and penny well drinks so basically you paid your five dollar cover you went over to the bar and what we always would do is right out the gate, we would hand them a five and be like, okay, this is what we're ordering. So boom, we've already given them five bucks. So we're paid up for the night. Plus we're saying, Hey, we're going to take, we'll, we'll tip you, you know, because you're not going to get tipped by all these college kids paying a penny for a drink. So then when there was a mass people at the bar, we could be right back there, just raise our hand. He'd make our two drinks and hand them back to us. We never really waited in line. So anyway, this bar stayed open till four in the morning. 
So we would go there and we would whoop it up, a penny drinks, and have a good old time. Bar would close about four. We would get a ride sometime to Waffle House or somewhere, get some food, and then roll into work at like six, you know. Uh, and the shop in Mobile uh, had two, it was it's huge, it's a big shop. So there's two couches. So typically we maybe lay down before everybody started coming in around seven. Um, and <laughs> they would come rolling in and we'd still have like our wristband, the, you know, the paper wrist things on <laughs> and, and not shaved and just, I mean, looking all sorts of rough and, and they would be like, Oh God, you guys went back down to the damn penny drinks again. And you know, Jeff Tunks, Jeff Tunks comes in. He calls us into his office. We go walking in there and he's like, God damn it, you two. What the hell are you guys doing? And we're like, what? We're here. We're on time. He's like, yeah, but you smell so bad. You smell like alcohol. You're both still fucking drunk. Do not touch anything. Do not talk to anybody. Get out of my sight. Get out of my office. It just disappear. Okay. You can't leave, but just don't do any work. We're like, okay. So we would go and lay down on the couches and <laughs> crash until like nine, ten o'clock when it was time to go home anyway on a Friday, right? Fr- oh Friday, Friday libo, right? Yeah, right. And uh, everybody hated <laughs> us because they're like, you guys are fucking worthless. You guys could don't do shit on Friday. <laughs> we're like, Pop Dev, there's nothing needs to be done for Pop Dev. It's Friday, right? We're out of here. So, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I love it. Dude, that is hilarious. Jason, these stories have been amazing. Thank you so much for giving us just a little glimpse of what you and him uh, went through your relationship and stuff. And just a, a little side stories about, you know, him in the shop. So, buddy, I really appreciate you, uh, you sharing all this stuff. It's been awesome. Thanks, man. I appreciate uh, having me on and everything that you do. Hey, thanks, man. Um, for everybody else out there, real quick, there is a, we do have a, a workout for Fernando George. It's named George. It's a hero wad, J-O-R-G-E. You can go to wadwell.com. It's pretty gnarly. GHD sit-ups and 155 squat cleans. It's a freaking gnarly one, but it's it's one of the ways that we can all remember our brother. So game on. But yeah, and, and, and if you do that workout, you'll remember him for several days when you, after the GHDs because you won't be able to sit up for like five days afterwards, unless you're an oh. avid, avid GHD user. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Dude, that's awesome. Game on. All right, brother, man. Uh, thank you again, and I'll, I'll be in touch. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Jason. Cool. Later. Up next, I get to sit down with a friend of mine. He is a co-founder of SR3 Rescue Concepts, and he is a certified instructor pilot. His name, Mr. Dave Callen. Dave and I take an opportunity to debrief the mishap of the 6535. Our goal with this debrief is to help prevent an incident like this from happening again. We talk about a few different things like crew resource management, pilot training, and tips and tricks to help prevent it. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Dave Callen. Thanks for coming, Dave. Thanks for having me, buddy. Appreciate it. It's always an honor. Oh, man. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you, too. Um, 
you know what? In this particular episode, we're, we're given uh, a good remembrance of those who lost their lives. And, you know, you and I have talked about it a little bit and we're going to break down the crash of, of how it happened. And I'm going to read the outline of it. And then, you know, we get, we get an opportunity to kind of debrief it and we're not taking away from anything that the pilots did. The air crew members did. Uh, we're just, we want to prevent this from happening again. And we're going to take uh, an outside look at how it went down and maybe we can save somebody else from having this happen. Um, it happens way too often. You know, guys get lost in IMC conditions. And next thing you know, you know, you look at Kobe Bryant, you look at um, other aircrafts that have gone in, that's what's happened to them. And maybe we can prevent that again. So here's hoping. Yeah, hopefully, you know, it's like you said, it's, uh, it, it's tragic because it, it's happened quite a bit over the years of open airplanes and helicopters. And, uh, you know, it is, it is technically an avoidable accident, um, but it, it does happen all too uh, frequently, unfortunately. So, uh, and it's easy, you know, we'll talk about that here shortly, but it's, you can see how easy it is for this to occur um, and, you know, to kind of catch you off guard and next thing you know, you're, you're kind of caught in the middle of the situation. So. Yeah, hopefully that's the goal here. It's just like you said, to be respectful of the crew and, and to honor those guys that lost their lives serving the country. And um, you know, just to have kind of an open discussion here on, on what happened and how you know, maybe it could be prevented in the future. I like it. Thanks, Dave. Like I said, I appreciate you being here. Um, just real quick, uh, everybody that hasn't heard your podcast, you actually have been on here. You had an incredible rescue out of Las Vegas. But for those that haven't heard you, don't know you, just a little bit of background, like, you know, you're uh, a certified flight instructor pilot, you know, how many years you've been flying? What have you flown? Just give everybody a little background of you. Yeah. So I, I actually started flying airplanes in the nineties and uh, got a few airplane ratings, um, but primarily flight helicopters. And yeah, I started off flying with Las Vegas Metro police. Uh, was hired on with them in the early two thousands, did some time with patrol and then went to the air unit. So um, a little over two thirds of my career, I just retired in 2020 as a sergeant out of the air unit. Uh, but about a little over two thirds of that was, was in unit flying um, and uh, eventually worked my way up to be a, a flight instructor, a night vision goggle instructor. I was a rescue pilot, so did day and night place flights uh, in the Hueys and then eventually in the H145. I uh, did a lot of tactical fast rope stuff with the SWAT team and with the K9 team. Uh, a lot of long line, short haul type rescues, a lot of rescues in the 500 platform, you know, one skids and tow ends and things of that nature. Uh, and then since then with SR3, one of the primary um, flight instructors. So fly pretty much everything now, um, you know, all the Airbus, Bell products, uh, Leonardo, pretty much everything. So uh, yeah, just a lot of um, day and, and nighttime uh, rescue experience. And then for me, uh, a lot of mine was, and, and is high altitude and very confined areas uh, for hoist stops and, and short haul type stuff. So, yeah, essentially that's my background and, um, you know, a decent amount of helicopter ratings, um, got airplane and, and helicopter instrument ratings. And don't have to use them too much and um, doing the SAR stuff, but uh, yeah, decent amount of experience there. And uh, that's kind of me in a nutshell. I would, I would say so. <laughs> Uh, yeah. And actually, you and I have talked a little bit because you actually survived a helicopter incident and walked away from this one. So do you have experience in all aspects of flying? Yeah, I've, I've had my my share of emergency procedures, that's for sure. I've actually, uh, yeah, I had two, uh, I had a total flame out uh, flying patrol in Las Vegas and ended up doing an auto to the street and then had another uh, incident prior to that. Um 
with, with basically lowering governor failure and we had to do an auto to the street in Las Vegas. So yeah, um, I, I, was, I joke about it now, but I'm like, I prefer the rest of my time flying helicopters to just be bored at this point. <laughs> <laughs> that was Can my we- goal is just to be bored when I'm flying, you know. <laughs> Probably smart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, you know what? It, that it's I'm I'm glad you you brought all that up because it's I want everybody to know that you do have experience. You have been flying a long time. You do know what you're talking about as we go into this incident. And so it's not um, we're not just a couple guys shooting the breeze trying to Monday morning quarterback this. We have experience. We've been flying for a long time, and that's why we're doing this. So with that, let me get into um, what we're going to talk about. So I'm going to read the overview of this in particular accident. And then, like I said, Dave, you and I are just going to kind of break it down a little bit and try to help those that are out there maybe prevent this from happening again. So uh, the overview of this is dated uh, on September 5th, 2013, this is right out of the Department of Homeland Security, U.S. Coast Guard Memorandum, uh, signed by uh, Vice Admiral Courier. And the overview, this is the final action on the administrative investigation to the crash of the Coast Guard 6535 that occurred on 28 February 2012. Overview. On 28 February 2012, at approximately 1,910 hours local time, 6535 helicopter was conducting a training flight, including approaches to the water, basket hoist with a 41-foot motor vessel, rescue swimmer hoist, and night water hovering position keeping. The air crew consisted of a qualified ATC instructor pilot as the pilot in command, a pilot under instruction as the co-pilot, a flight mechanic, and a rescue swimmer. Training was conducted as planned, but weather condition deteriorated during the flight. After the final hoist, the PIC passed the controls to the co-pilot to practice hovering at night with the flight director's hover augmentation, hov aug mode. After two minutes of hover work, the PIC elected to depart for ATC. Based on the cockpit recording dialogue, it appears that night vision goggles were used by the PIC. The PIC disengaged the hub aug mode and the co-pilot initiated the instrument departure towards 1,000 feet. Sometime after the aircraft descended above 200 feet, but below the maximum recorded altitude of 396 feet, the PIC noticed that they had gone instrument meteorological conditions, which is also known as IMC, and immediately took the controls. IMC describes weather conditions that requires pilots to fly primarily by reference to instruments rather than outside visual references. 16 seconds prior to mishap, the PIC stated his intention to slowly come down to try to regain visual conditions and request that the co-pilot provide radar map page on the PIC multifunction display instrument. Approximately 2.4 seconds prior to impact, the PIC increased collective pitch to the aircraft torque. The aircraft impacted the water with a descent rate of 2,197 feet per minute and at a speed of 84.5 knots. All aircrew members were perished. All right, Dave. So we got, we got, a, we got a gnarly incident here where, you know, the pilots go IMC. 
and now the aircraft goes into a turn and a descent and a fast descent at that, you know, um, I've been in the clouds myself and I, you, I remember flying an E-60 out of Alaska and I'm looking out the left-hand door and I'm watching the clouds pass that auxiliary tank and, and remembering like, wow, I, I cannot see anything. So, you know, what, walk us through something that we can do to try to avoid that. So, um, you know, there's, there's a handful of things, I guess. And, and, you know, again, first of all, just, just want to say like, you know, my, my respects to the family and friends of all these people that lost their lives. Um, you know, it's, it's just a horrible tragedy. And, um, I, you know, you've, you've lost brothers and sisters in the line of duty I have as well. And it's, you, you really, you can't explain how painful that is, um, you know, for everybody involved. So, you know, just, again, want to be respectful to everybody um, that was affected by this tragedy, but, um, I know one of the things you and I discussed was what you just said is how could the rear crew members potentially use some CRM with the pilots to try to help avoid or, or deal with this once it occurs. Um, and, you know, like you said, sometimes there's, there's kind of a wall sometimes, you know, between the front of the aircraft and the back of the aircraft. And as far as like what we understand, everybody's roles and responsibilities are. So, yeah. Um, you know, I think the first thing is it's important to point out here that the weather was forecast to be much better than it ended up being. So when the crew departed, they they did not anticipate the weather dropping down to a 400 foot ceiling. And I think it said at the time of the accident, the nearest reporting station said that it was 400 foot ceilings. So the clouds were only 400 feet above the water right. and the visibility was like 4.4 miles. So it degraded, um, you know, faster than was was forecast to happen and that happens sometimes but um you know the one thing is to, to definitely point out that everybody's got a voice right so yeah at any time in any type of emission whether it's hoisting or you know tactical or whatever if somebody on board starts to question the safety of it to just speak up and it's common for a crew member um, especially maybe somebody in the back to, to call up and say hey you know I, I'm not 100% comfortable with this, whether it's, you know, wind or it's the ceiling visibility, but at least it prompts a discussion. And sometimes the pilots can say, hey, you know, appreciate the input, uh, but we're actually good and here's why. And if yeah. they have that that discussion and uh, everybody agrees, okay, we're going to press on, then that's fine. But the discussion was, was had and that's what's important. Um, so that's the first thing is just to call it out. Uh, and then also it's, it's critical to have an environment where people do feel like they can talk about something or, or, you know, raise a concern. And I think in aviation in general, we've got so much better over the years with creating an environment where you can have those conversations and kind of, you know, rank doesn't come into play when it comes to, to something like that. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, if you go back into the fifties and the sixties, it was like, you know, the PIC or the captain had the final word and there was people afraid to say anything. And literally, you know, airliners were flowing in the mountains because the first officer didn't want to say anything. So right. we've, we've come a long way. Um, the other thing that's important too, is for everybody to continuously reassess that. So I think sometimes what happens is we do a flight risk assessment prior to departing. We look at the weather, we look at fatigue, we look at all the factors that generate some risk. And then sometimes that gets filed away and nobody looks at it ever again. Well, when you talk about operational risk management, it's a continual process. So you have to be reevaluating the flight the entire time until literally you land and you shut down. So, and not to say that that didn't occur here, 
but what they were doing is very challenging. That's a very challenging type of flying. I mean, I, I don't right. know that you can do anything more difficult than night hoisting over water at night. I mean, you know, that's literally, that's about as tough yeah. as it gets. And the oh, Coast Guard's yeah. not a lot of, I mean, that's, that's just, that's their bread and butter, you know? So, um, but it's pretty, it, it's pretty obvious how you could get very sucked into what you're doing and, and kind of past saturated, if you will, at the goal and the mission. So, um, you know, it, it's important to realize though, that you have to continually reevaluate. And even if when you're talking about having a briefing with the rear crew folks to say, Hey, it looks like the weather's starting to get worse than we thought, but we're still good. But Hey, maybe after every hoist evolution, we're going to reevaluate this. And if right. the weather gets to this point, we'll draw a line in the sand and we're going to call it. So, um, that's another thing. And then, you know, lastly, um, there's been a handful of incidents and one of them, actually, um, one of our instructors, Rob Monday, could tell you a really uh, crazy story that this happened to him where he was in a, a Bocal BK-117 flying and they went in inadvertent IMC. And uh, it sounds like they were actually upside down at one point. But Rob was just trying to give some assistance to the pilot by telling him, hey, level the wings, level the wings. You know, hey, your airspeed is high, your airspeed is low. Um, you know, and obviously, if you have a pilot and a co-pilot, the non-flying pilot can hopefully provide that assistance but in a situation where you're talking about like hems you know ems or uh, just something where it's you know a, a non um you know larger military crew aircraft where it's maybe just a pilot and, and a you know another passenger a hoist operator or something right. like that that's invaluable just to help the pilot and say hey you know just level the wings level the wings level the wings okay your, your, your wings are level you know help provide maybe some of that information and, and talk them through it because you can imagine how loaded up the pilot is now yeah. Well, it, you know, we talk about it all the time, CRM, CRM, CRM. It, it's, there's so much importance to it. And, you know, as a guy in the back, one of the things I want to do is I want to help you guys in the front as much as I can. And, you know, I, another story is I got, um, I'm in the back of the H60 and there was a glitch that happened in the system. And all of a sudden I'm cut off for communications with the pilots. And it, we just, we just didn't have communications. They ended up doing a reset. Once we get back on the ground, communications came back. So it wasn't, it was a non-event, but the fact of the matter has happened. And I had, I didn't know if all their instruments were shorted out up front. So I'm reading off altitude stuff from what I had in the back. I don't know if they can hear me or not. I just, you know, like I'm, I'm trying to keep up communications and I think that's important. I've also been in the uh, back of the aircraft where I've had, Hey, lock it up. Now my eyes, I'm still using, I'm still watching, you know, I'm listening to everything you're saying. And if you're telling me you're coming down in altitude, I might pipe up anyway and be like, Roger, I'm watching for the ground. Boop, done. You know, you, at least you know that I'm still engaged in the flight operations. And I think that's important for everybody. I think you have to stay in, engaged at all point in time. And I'm not saying that anybody wasn't engaged in this fight. It's just an important point to bring up for everybody. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, you cannot put um, enough emphasis on how much we, we rely on, you know, the hoist operator, crew chief, you know, whatever you, know, you want to call the person in the back that's, that's doing that, that job in those types of missions, but it, it is absolutely critical. And in certain phases of flight, that person is more important than the pilots, in my opinion. So, you know, um, when it comes to things like that, especially calling out something that maybe is perceived as unanticipated movement, like, you know, settling, you know, reducing an altitude, drifting, climbing, anything like that. Um, you know, I always tell the people I fly with, yeah, just call it out. You know, I, I need to know. Sometimes we don't know, especially when you're talking about something like overwater at night on goggles, 
You know, that is critical. And something like uh, losing the pilot's visual reference on the target, instantly that, that can turn into an emergency procedure. And it's very easy to lose control of the aircraft. So, yeah, you, you have to call it out. And uh, there's, there's something to be said with the amount of teamwork required amongst the whole crew to, to make these things you know, happen safely. So Dave, out of curiosity, um, you as a pilot, again, I'm not a pilot. I'm a guy, I'm a crew member in the back and I'll do everything I can in the back to help you guys up front. But if you're a pilot and you're flying into something that's IMC, so now you've lost all visual reference and now you have to fly instruments. Is there something that you can do that helps you get out of that situation or prevent something like a descent to the ground like this? again this specific incident is there anything that you could do to prevent something like this happening again so to prevent it uh, i think it's a lot of the stuff that we just discussed um you know it it's it's challenging because you know again i think there's there's a there's the human element too where you know i know these these guys were out there training and they were trying to get in a certain amount of evolutions for qualification for the for the co-pilot so it's pretty easy to say, hey, let's just do one more. You know, we'll do one more. Um, so again, I think the biggest thing is just for somebody to, to, to speak up and call that out. And just a lot of times the, the rear crew folks are a little bit more detached uh, than the pilots are because the pilots are, are pretty, you know, um, they're pretty loaded up, I guess, with the flying portion of it, especially when the conditions are challenging. So a lot of times that person in the back like you has uh, a little bit more of a, an ability to kind of look at the situation from uh, a detachment point of view and say, Hey, you know what? The weather's actually coming down. Um, and, and plus like with you just in the door with the door open, I mean, you can see everything. We can only kind of see what's in front of us and maybe out to the side. So that's another thing is you may have a much better opportunity to look out the door, especially if you're not an MEGs, you know, MEGs are, are an amazing tool, but they do sometimes have a tendency to make it to where you don't realize the weather is deteriorating as much as it is. You know, you can't, they don't let you see through clouds or anything like that. But uh, sometimes under certain conditions, uh, if you were to flip them up, you might go, oh, wow, it's actually, it's it's worse than than uh, than I realized, you know, when you had them down. So, yeah, I just think something like that um, with the, the CRM portion of it and then like we discussed previously, if it does happen, the pilots are going to be extremely busy. I mean, that's probably um, one of the most, um, you know, challenging things in addition to the hoisting is popping into the clouds, especially when it was not intended. Because now all of a sudden you didn't think it was going to happen and now you're, you can't see anything and you have to immediately revert to the instruments. Um, there's probably, a, you know, an adrenaline dump that's going to come with that. So the pilots are going to be very, very um, you know, have their hands full at that point. So you certainly don't want to start, you know, um, interjecting to the point where it becomes a distraction where the pilot's like, Hey, just everybody lock it down. I just need to fly. Let me just get the aircraft under control. Um, but at the same time, you know, if you can, if you see something critical and you need to point it out, whether it's like, Hey, you know, I, I can see the ground now, you know, or, Hey, I can, I can see above us or, Hey, I've got, you know, an obstacle over here, just, you know, something that's pertinent. Um, as a rear crew member, if there's a co-pilot that can assist the pilot, I would say let him assist the pilot. Um, but in a situation like with what happened to Rob, if it was just, you know, you and the pilot and he punches into the clouds, if you can help him get the aircraft under control by talking through through a procedure, yeah. um, or even if you're up front, a lot of places will have like a HEMS crew member, they'll put a doctor up front. And 
a lot of those places that fly EMS will have the doctor trained to sort, you know, paramedic trained to some level of proficiency to help with, you know, maybe switching autopilot modes or changing frequencies or things like that. Anything you can do that reduces the workload on the pilot while they're flying in the clouds is, is a huge game changer as well. And obviously, you, know, you can't do that from the back as a place operator, but those are just some other things to consider for people. You're right. Uh, and there are some bigger aircrafts like the H-60. I, it, it's hard for me to see up into the instrument panel, the 139, same thing. Um, some of the smaller aircraft. So I can, I can see over the shoulders of the pilot and I can look at instruments, um, wings level, uh, you know, you rate of descent you rate, or rate of climb, rate of descent. Uh, you know, I, I can see a lot of that. And there, I, I have looked up there and, and tried to look at that. Me personally, again, I'm just trying to be an observer, see what's going on. You know, I, I have seen pilots get task saturated. It's, I've, I've been task saturated in the back and you guys are drinking a cup of coffee. They're like, hey, are you done back there or what? I'm like, I'm a little busy. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, you got load after load and, and you just, yeah, you, you get you get that tunnel vision side of things. And, you know, it's, it's whatever we can do to prevent it. And you've, you've got one guy, one guy break that chain and be like, hey, have a conversation, bring something up. So, yeah. The other thing is, is, is there's, you know, sometimes there's like little red flags that pop up. Um, and another one that, that kind of popped into my mind here, just reading the, the accident report was um, at one point it said that the, the vessel, the Solomon reported having difficulty seeing the aircraft and the simulated survivor during the RS hoisting portion uh, due to poor visibility. So the, the, I mean, you can include not only the aircraft crew, but people that are participating in either a real rescue or um, a training evolution on, on the ground or on the water. You know, those folks should absolutely, I mean, they're part of this, this whole process and the mission. So for the vessel to get on and say, hey, just FYI, we're having a hard time seeing you guys. The visibility is getting really bad. You know, if nothing else, that's really, really good information because uh, the ground visibility sometimes is different than flight visibility depending on the condition. So that was another thing that kind of stood out to make sure that you include the people that are, you know, whether you, you inserted someone on the ground or in the water or you've got a vessel in the water or whatever, but everybody involved in this should have a voice and everybody should be thinking the same thing when it comes to safety, right? Yeah. Agreed, man. Totally. Man, we've, we've had a great conversation about a lot of the, the crew resource management and being able to use, you know, both the, us in the back and, and you guys up front and trying to do that give and take for as much, you know, um, as much awareness and situational awareness as we could possibly get. Uh, but as an instructor pilot, what do you got for the guys that are up front, you know, with all your years of experience? Yeah, so that you know, a few things I would say. First of all, there's believe it or not, there there are quite a few people out there flying helicopter rescue missions that don't have instrument rating. There's some places where it's just not required, or there's other places where they, you know, maybe they don't even you know consider flying in those types of conditions. But the training is invaluable. So even if you have no intention of ever flying in the clouds, getting an instrument instrument rating will not only make you a much better pilot. It, it, it's a very challenging rating to get, but it much better prepares you for an inadvertent IMC encounter. So that's one. Um, and then the other, when it comes to training, there's a, a few things. So simulator training is amazing. It's great. Um, it, it has the ability to force you to not be able to see anything and have to just fly on the instruments. 
it doesn't give you the, the same feeling unless you're in a full blown, you know, level B type simulator of, of the movement, but it's, it's a great tool. There's a new device that's uh, been manufactured recently called the Icarus device that is uh, something that attaches. It's a clear shield that attaches to a helmet, either through an MBG mount or, or other means. And it allows the instructor pilot to adjust the level of um, like obstruction to the student's view. So the cool thing about it is you're, you've got this clear shield over your, the, you know, your eyes, essentially. It almost looks like a half shield hockey helmet if anybody out there plays hockey, but. Um, I, I do. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I do too. But, <laughs> but you know, your instructor can slowly reduce the visibility until you go completely to where you can't see anything, and that can it can be adjusted based on what the panel looks like in the aircraft that you're flying. Because uh, the old-fashioned way that we've had to do for years is, you know, you wear like the hood is what everybody calls it. So it's some sort of a view-limiting device that the pilot wears, and they're either you know like a big hood device that that covers the top of your, your vision. So you only see the panel, hopefully, or like some glasses that have a cutout where you only see the panel. But, you know, one of the downsides to that is for when you can't control how much you can or can't see. And with that Icarus device, you know, it's a little bit more realistic because you can see and then all of a sudden it just, you know, dissolves and now you can't see. And that's that's pretty much, you know, what an actual Invert 19 kind of would look like. But the other thing is that's cool. you can, you, you can as, as pilots and, you know, I would challenge any of the pilots listening to this to tell me if, if you've never done this, because I, I would I would call BS on it if you've never done it. At least <laughs> if you're flying during the day or where you do have the ability to see visually, you can kind of sneak a peek underneath the hood or the goggles. And what I always tell guys when we're doing this type of training is, hey, man, you know, don't don't cheat. Don't look underneath that thing because it's an uncomfortable feeling if we do what we call unusual attitude training or inadvertent IMC training where you know, you're simulating losing control of the aircraft. You put the, the aircraft in a bit of an unusual attitude and then you have the student recover looking at the instrument panel. Well, most of the time when we do that to make it realistic, we want the student to feel uh, something other than what they see when they look at the panel. What I mean by that is you might look at the panel, get on the instruments, level the aircraft and get under control, but you're, you're, you know, your inner ear and your brain are, are telling you that you're turning and you're climbing, you're descending. And it's, it's a pretty uncomfortable feeling, but that's the point is one of the main goals of that is to not only get you to where you can get the aircraft under control, but to be able to, to kind of fight through that, if you will. So I always tell guys, you know, Hey, you're, you're seriously cheating yourself out of training that can legitimately save your life. Um, because you know, if you if you just look underneath these things and cheat and get the thing under control visually, you know, you might as well not go out and do it at all. So um, that, that's a really big thing. Uh, the other thing would be when you, if you do get into Tanyavert and IMC, um, there's a couple procedures, but the main one is you just immediately transition to the instruments, get the aircraft under control and climb. Um, and as uncomfortable as that is, because you're thinking, man, I, I would I would really like to just either turn around and go the other way, which that's another procedure as well, is to just do a 180 degree turn and and try to pop back out of it, or to potentially, you know, just climb, get on the radio, declare an emergency, and you know, ATC can help you. There's, you know, depending on, on if you have an instrument rating, you could eventually, you know, fly an actual instrument approach to, to get back to an airport. But my point is, um, you know, you need to commit to the procedure as difficult as that is. When you're in the clouds, you're in the clouds. And for these guys, I can see exactly how they, they thought, hey, you know, we just barely popped into them. And the, the PIC said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to just slowly descend and, and get back into the MC conditions to where we can see again. 
Yeah. And it's very tempting to do that. Um, but you, you just need to commit if there's a procedure in place and that's almost always what it is. You just climb, maintain control of the aircraft and deal with the emergency from there. Um, and then on that note as well, depending on what you're flying, you may have some autopilot system or, or systems that can, that can help you out. So it could be something simple, like just a basic, you know, uh, two or three axis autopilot, or it could be something very advanced, like a four axis autopilot, um, you know, in some of the bigger aircraft. But if you have automation, uh, use it, you know, anything you can do to assist you with keeping the aircraft under control, um, you know, highly, highly recommend uh, using it when, you know, when you can. And initially when it happens, I mean, it's, hugely shocking if you talk to anybody that's had this happen to them they were just like man i can't believe that for one that it happened and then when it did for a second i was in denial and then you know um it's it's pretty terrifying honestly the, the guys that i've talked to that this has happened to that they survived it i mean they'll tell you man it was it was it was pretty intense uh, until they were finally to get back out of the clouds especially if they weren't expecting it so um yeah really that would be the majority of what I would say, but you can't put a price tag on an instrument rating. That's, that's the biggest thing. Awesome. Well, man, Dave, I, I thank you for coming on and, and just kind of sharing some of the stuff. I appreciate it. I hope there's a lot of people out there that, that take this to heart, you know, cause this is a tragedy that we, we don't want to see happen again, you know? So. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's an honor always to, uh, to be on here and to talk with you. I appreciate the opportunity, you know, and, uh, Again, just can't can't say enough about the sacrifice that that crew made for their country. You know, God bless all of them. Thanks, Dave. I appreciate it, brother. I want to take the opportunity to say thank you again to Gina, Sean, Ed, Jason, and Dave for joining me here to help us remember our lost finned brother, United States Coast Guard rescue swimmer number four hundred and four, Mister Fernando George. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are out of here. Go. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Real Rescue Podcast. Please take a minute to like, subscribe, and hit that share button. I'm pulling chocks and taking off. But before I go, if anyone out there has a rescue story they would be willing to share, I would be humbled and honored to have you on as a guest. Or if you have any questions about rescue or anything else we talk about here, send an email to jason at therealrescue.com. That's jason at T-H-E-R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q.com. You can also check us out on our web pages, therealrescue.com, our Facebook page, and our Instagram page at The Real Rescue. Again, a special thank you to all of you standing on the watch today. Always remember, when that SAR alarm goes off, those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. Until next time, fly safe and swim hard. <laughs>